Welcome to the uh, February 10th, 2012 edition of CNI Conversations. I'm Cliff Lynch, the director of CNI, and with me here I have Joan Lippincott, CNI's associate director. We've got a assortment of things to cover today, um, some uh, reports and some developments um, on the policy front. Um, an interesting example of how weird the publishing world is getting. Um, some conversation about um, uh, conferences and um, recent developments on that front. And finally, a report from our executive roundtable from our uh, um, December uh, member meeting. So um, let me get started with a couple of um, quick updates and comments. Um, we released a CNI conversation earlier this week, which was a first attempt at a um, new or variant format, where I talked at some length with um, uh, David Lewis, the Dean of the Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis um, Joint Campus uh, Library. Um, and we talked at length about um, an effort that he's been involved with to do what in essence amounts to site licensing of textbooks in electronic format on behalf of um, students. It's a very interesting approach to um, uh, moving to electronic textbooks and really substantially reducing the cost of these um, while at the same time addressing some of the very real problems that have shown up in sort of transactional e-textbook models. And um, I um, think the conversation that I had with him was uh, very informative. I'd invite you to uh, listen to our um, discussion um, if you're interested in this topic, but I also mention this because I would welcome um, suggestions for other people that um, Joan or I might have a similar conversation with on a specific topic, um, as well as, of course, we always welcome suggestions for topics we might speak to on these uh, conversations. Many of you are probably familiar with the annual Horizon Report that's put out under the auspices of the um, uh, New Media Consortium, NMC, um, and uh, this year's Horizon Report will be released formally at the EDUCAUSE ELI meeting um, that's scheduled to take place early next week in Austin, Texas. What I wanted to say a few words about was a really interesting um, discussion that I was fortunate to be able to attend a couple of weeks ago that the NMC brought together. This was um, the this was ostensibly a sort of a celebration of the Horizon Project's tenth anniversary. And they used this as a chance to bring together many of the people who over the years have been involved in the work of the Horizon Project and to um, get those people to spend a day thinking about um, 
really broad trends. You know, the horizon reports tend to look out into things that are likely to have an impact in the next year or two at the kind of closer end of the spectrum, and then maybe five years out at the longer end of the spectrum. And um, this was really an attempt to identify some sort of big macro trends that um, uh, would inform thinking about the future of higher education broadly. I'm not going to go through the trends because um, I, I think that those have already been distributed in the communique from the meeting, and I know that um, uh, the uh, New Media Consortium folks are, um, are working on a much more elaborate report. Um, but I just want to reflect a couple of things that really came up um, as topics for discussion there. One was the international factor, um, uh, the enormous investments that are being made abroad um, in higher education, um, while we seem to be um, vigorously disinvesting in it in this country. Um, certainly if you look at the um, the loss of state support for uh, public um, universities, the numbers over the last decade are just stunning um, in their size. Um, the 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 fact that now we are seeing learning experiences that span national boundaries in a much more casual way, courses that um, engage students across multiple nations. Um, uh, these are very interesting developments. Um, certainly a lot of conversation about scale and the implications of scale. Um, a lot of um, discussion about the increased role of video and the um, the ease with which um, uh, video now is is created, um, uh, and the move you know away in some sense from the written word and towards video and rich media presentations of various kinds. Um, the other topic, which I think. Um, really uh, um, engaged people. Actually, it's kind of a pair of topics. One was about um, the the kind of rethinking of what it means to learn and to know and the um, trade-offs between mastering uh, a very large body of facts now um, when you've got mobile access to um, enormous online libraries of these facts and in some sense can um, look facts up a lot more easily and the um, the, the greater emphasis on, um, on techniques and practices and um, problem solving. Um, and then paralleled with that, a whole rise of um, what they mostly refer to as informal learning. Um, you see pieces of this emerging when you look at open courseware and the use that's being made of some of the open courseware things or these notions of being able to get badges or certifications, um, uh, the sort of thing MIT has announced it's going to do. Um, or the um, 
the the um, certification that you've successfully uh, been one of the 40,000 people that have um, completed uh, Stanford's global course on artificial intelligence. Um, these these kinds of changes, and um, in particular the extent to which various parts of society will accept these um, th these kinds of badges or certifications, um, are really interesting questions. So um, certainly um, you'll find uh, the reports coming out of this, I believe, to be interesting reading. Um, I will also just mention in passing that um, the International Conference of Scientific Unions, ICSU, has got a scenarios project running. Um, uh, they call it the Foresight Project, and they issued their first report late last year out of this project. Um, this looks at <coughs> how science and the world of scientific research globally might look in, um, in uh, 2030, say. Um, and in particular, some of the issues about the extent to which science would be driven by commercial goals and commercial support, the extent to which it runs along national rather than international boundaries. Um, I uh, had an opportunity to read these last week, and um, I will put out a pointer to the report to CNI announce uh, for those who are interested in this. I always find these kind of, um, you know, scenario-based attempts to help us think about the future of scholarship to be uh, valuable. <clears throat> One of the connections that I kept finding as I um, read this was back to the scenarios that the ARL did last year for um, the future of research libraries and really it turned out to be a lot more about the future of scholarly work um, in um, the 2030s as well. Um, I think there's some very interesting connections here, although as far as I know, neither project knew about each other. Um, I want to tell a short story about how strange the world is getting in various ways, and also um, uh, as part of this mention, a um, book that uh, some folks might be interested in. Um, some of you may be familiar with the past work of Lori Garrett. Um, she is a um, researcher who has written several major books on public health. Um, back in the mid-90s, she did a book called The Coming Plague that ran, that, that won many awards um, about emergent diseases in um, the um, in the current environment and then later on she did another book on the uh, breakdown of the public health systems um, so she's quite a, a well-known um, science author within her field um, won Pulitzer Prizes and things like that so um, I was fascinated to discover about um, 10 days ago that she had in fact come out with a new book and in fact had come out with it a number of months ago. Um, this is a book that she put out um, as an ebook um, 
all by herself called I Heard the Siren Scream. It's about her experiences in New York City immediately following 9-11 and um, it kind of alternates between um, uh, a description of um, what was happening to New York in those months and a um, accounting of the response to various bioterrorism threats, the anthrax letters that um, came shortly after 9-11. Um, it's a, um, at least I'm finding it, I'm about three quarters of the way through it, an absolutely compelling book. It's, um, it, it's quite long. It's uh, probably, well, how long is an ebook? Um, uh, probably, I'm thinking this would be eight or nine hundred pages if it was uh, uh, done as a um, formal book. It is quite um, quite extensive. Um, now, there are a couple of things that are interesting here. One, um, as I say, is the book itself, and um, uh, I won't get into that other than to note that one of the things that this really reminded me of was the um, extent to which um, government and business, but particularly government, was really moved forcefully to dependence on email in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, that, in fact, um, one of the things that happened was that the um, anthrax letters really um, caused enormous concern about the postal system and um, uh, an enormous amount of <coughs> disruption in the postal system, which forced um, government at all levels to move to email, um, which is a very interesting kind of story that I'd um, largely forgotten. But the other thing that's fascinating here is that um, this um, book, um, despite the, um, the prestige of the author and the importance of the book, at least in my view, um, seems to have gotten almost no attention from the mainstream press because she chose to self-publish it. Um, it appears that many of the, um, uh, of the key kind of review venues for, um, for uh, popular press material and probably scholarly work too, um, still have a very, very strong bias against self-publishing, equating it as vanity publishing. And I think that this is a, a very um, striking example of how far we've moved away from um, from you know the old view of this as vanity publishing and how really poorly the review mechanisms have kept up and the need to um, rethink of some of them and just sort of as a by the by the very real difficulty sometimes now of becoming aware of very important work because of that bias. Um, I think at this point um, I just have one other thing I want to update on and that is the Office of Science and Technology policy calls for um, comments that closed in um, mid-January. 
uh, you'll recall we talked about these earlier, um, and there were two of them, one about public access to articles resulting from federally funded research, and the second dealing with um, uh, policy around public access to data produced in the course of federally funded research. Um, these comments, all of these, the comments that OSTP received are now up on the web, and I did put the pointers to those out to CNI announce. What's striking about these is the enormous size of the comments. Um, I pulled down the ones just on, um, on data, um, which were much less voluminous than the ones on public access to articles. And this is a 650-page PDF file. Um, it appears that we really have got um, a, a response level to these sort of queries that really is going to make understanding the responses significantly challenging. Um, I know that OSTP has some people working on this, but um, I did find myself wondering about um, uh, whether we're not going to increasingly need um, uh, new kinds of tools, the same kinds of tools that um, we use to handle other parts of the data deluge as we um, uh, try and um, collect public comment on um, these kinds of uh, policy issues. I think what I want to do at this point is to um, turn it over to uh, Joan, who will report on a couple of uh, meetings that she's had an opportunity to participate in and that I think you'll find interesting. Thanks, Cliff. At the end of January, I attended the annual meeting of the Association of American Colleges and Universities, AACNU, here in D.C. Their conferences generally focus on various aspects of teaching and learning in higher ed. Assessment was the topic of many sessions that I attended, and I learned about the recently published follow-on study to the book Academically Adrift, which decried the lack of development of critical thinking skills in students after four years of college. The new study examines how graduates are faring two years after completion of their four-year program, and they found that students who were identified in their earlier study as highly academically engaged and who demonstrated more learning gains during college, that those students are achieving more positive outcomes than others in their peer group in terms of enrollment in graduate school, employment, and engagement with current events. We'll put a URL for that study on the, C on the CNI Conversations website along with a few R URLs for other things that I'll be mentioning. While these findings are not particularly surprising, it is useful to have data to back up impressions. I also learned about George Q's new endeavor. He was a key developer, if not the key developer, of NESI, the National Survey of Student Engagement, and he's now retired from Indiana University. He and Stan Eikenberry, who's the former president of the University of Illinois and the American Council on Education, ACE, have developed NILOA, the National Institute for Learning Outcomes Assessment, which has a website rich with documentation on learning outcomes, case studies, reports, and other materials. 
One point made by Eikenberry sums up some of my own impressions. He said, and I'm loosely quoting here, a lot of assessment work is being done at the program and departmental level, not at the institution level. Currently, assessment is dogma-driven and not need-to-know or question-driven, which explains in part why we don't apply results. It's hard to balance the demands for simplicity with the real need for complexity. We need a complex array of evidence. I found that very compelling. In another set of sessions, I learned about some innovative student projects. Here are two that particularly captured my interest. At the University of Louisville, one award-winning TA has rhetoric students represent beauty from five cultures and then develop multimodal presentations with audio, images, etc. that they then give in class presentations. The second one was a fascinating collaboration between the John Jay College of Criminal Justice of CUNY and the University of Texas at El Paso, which is right at the border with Mexico. And the two classes had the similar focus of exploring race and ethnicity. They shared their information with counterparts in the other university. In both cases, these were generally first-generation college students who had hardly traveled outside of their own neighborhoods. As one of the initial exercises, students made videos of what they imagined the other city to be like, and then they traded their work. This led to heated conversations via Ning, video conferencing, and discussion forums. Many of the students have maintained relationships with the students in the other city now a year or so after the course was first conducted. And the faculty discussed how they met their objectives, which included developing digital competencies, collaborative skills, and understanding of other cultures. It was really a fascinating session. And another conference at the American Library Association Midwinter Conference in Dallas, I was asked to participate in a panel organized by the ACRL Research Planning and Review Committee to discuss higher education trends that influence academic libraries. I chose to focus my remarks on the topics of assessment, the mobile environment, e-research, and globalization. These are all topics that we've been tracking for some time at CNI, and we've had many sessions at our membership meetings that highlight developments in these areas. I think that the most important aspect of a session like this is to understand the relationship between library and IT services and the broader trends in our environment and to both lead and support the initiatives in our higher education institutions that will help us advance research, teaching, and learning. Back to you, Cliff. Thank you. Um, I want to touch on two final things before we wrap up this um, conversations for today. Um, one is a set of um, issues that I keep encountering um, over and over again about um, funding, and here's the setup for this. Um, with the, um, the requirement for data management plans, uh, as part of the um, part of NSF funding applications, one of the things that many universities now are mobilizing to do in order to support faculty is they are developing 
what I would characterize as prepaid um, bit storage services. Um, Princeton was one of the first to come out with um, such a service, and um, uh, many of you may have heard or um, Serge um, Goldstein from Princeton um, talk about that work at CNI or seen the video. Um, David Rosenthal has also been looking at um, these uh, issues um, and how you come up with cost modeling. Um, and again, um, has spoken several times at CNI and we've uh, made some video available of his recent thinking there. Um, I know that the California Digital Library folks have also been doing work in this area. And I recently saw an announcement that the um, University of Southern California has also um, come out with a similar service. Um, they all basically share a similar kind of a model, which is you pay once and um, that funds the storage of a certain um, uh, number of bits uh, for either a fixed period like 10 years or 15 years, or in some cases forever. Um, which, of course, is one of these words that makes me very nervous. Um, so the issue, or, or one of the big issues here, is how do you come up with the pricing to do this? Um, and um, this, uh, this has been very interesting, and um, a, a number of people have looked at it. Uh, there are some very naive kind of ways you can do it using what's essentially a um, straightforward, constant, um, uh, discounted cash flow kind of a model. Um, uh, if um, you're trying to do it for a 10-year period, then you can use a mixture of um, interest and uh, principal, uh, which you draw down over the course of that period um, in order to fund things. Um, if you're going to do it in perpetuity, uh, then you basically need to set up a um, completely endowment type model that spins off enough money every year to um, uh, uh, do what you need to do. Um, one of the things that we're seeing, of course, right now is that in an environment where interest rates are at best very low and actually, if you look at inflation honestly, probably negative, um, uh, it's kind of hard to spin off enough um, interest uh, to um, fund things in perpetuity. Um, you need a really, really big endowment to do that. Um, it's a lot easier to um, basically spend down um, principal for a, a finite um, uh, for a finite uh, length commitment. Um, there's been a lot of debate about these models, partially because um, uh, those of us who are technologists are acutely aware of the um, uncertainties on the. Um, cost side of things. How much cheaper is disk storage going to get and how fast is it going to get cheaper and when and how are the 
um, operational aspects um, going to begin to dominate the capital expense aspects. For example, um, it may cost at some point more in electricity um, to uh, keep um, you know a petabyte alive uh, than it does to buy the gear um, to actually house the bits on. Um, so we, we've got a number of uncertainties like that. But I'm also increasingly struck by the levels of uncertainty um, on the, um, uh, on the um, financial side of this and the need to really um, see some considerably more sophisticated um, ensemble simulation models or something um, that allow us to get a feeling for um, the not just the cost but the sort of envelope of robustness of those quoted costs in other words um, what kind of perturbations in um, uh, interest rates inflation things like that um, would create liabilities that the prepaid costs wouldn't cover in other words um, really understanding the risks involved to institutions in offering these kind of prepaid services um, I think there's really some opportunities for some fascinating collaborations here as we um, bring these two together, not so much as we're trying to do right now as simple predictive costing and um, uh, financial models, but really as two, you know, sort of um, random processes with parameters on them that need to be kept in sync and have a whole lot of uncertainty surrounding them and their interactions. Um, so I thought um, it was worth reflecting on that for a couple of minutes. The last thing I want to talk about, and interestingly enough, um, this also is about risk in another uh, sense, is the executive roundtable that we did at the CNI meeting in December. Um, every CNI meeting on the morning of the first day, we do uh, an invitational um, executive roundtable. Um, we put out announcements to the um, member reps from the academic institutions about these, and um, uh, usually places go very fast because we try and keep it to about 10 institutions so that the um, group is small enough to really have a conversation and we seek to have each institution represented by senior leadership from both the library and the IT side. Our topic for um, last December was uh, risk management and disaster planning. And we've done a report on this, which should be available, I think, on the um, CNI website by the time this, um, this uh, CNI Conversations is posted or very, very shortly thereafter. Um, it really turned out to be a fascinating discussion. Um, and I just want to mention a couple of highlights. First, I think it's important to disentangle um, some of the terminology here. Um, there's risk management, which largely starts with understanding where your points of vulnerability are and how those are controlled, um, and then making decisions about what levels of risk are acceptable. 
there is risk mitigation, which is going around and trying to reduce your levels of risk. There's disaster planning, which says bad stuff is going to happen that you really can't control. Um, you may be able to reduce the likelihood of it, but sometimes it will happen anyway. Um, you know, there's not too much you can do about earthquakes, for example, um, other than deal with them. Um, and the questions here are become, what do you do after the disaster? How do you communicate with your community? How do you bring your critical systems back online and in what order? What are your critical systems? How do you ensure that you don't lose too much? Um, and then there are questions about business continuity planning, which is related to disaster recovery, but actually takes on some additional aspects. Um, Many of our universities are doing these kinds of things at some level. Um, these kinds of issues have become of considerable interest in some places to um, boards of trustees or regents as well as senior executive leadership at the institutions. Um, and uh, certainly every time we have a large-scale um, natural disaster, um, this uh, you know, ratchets up the attention on it a little more. Um, at the same time, it was striking listening here to um, how much focus there's been on core administrative systems and sort of basic operational systems, things like email and the you know campus website as a communications vehicle, phone systems, uh, things like that. And um, it's striking that at many institutions, the um, you know sort of continued um, steady um, introduction of um, information technology-based services into the libraries, into teaching and research, um, uh, have not been recognized in these. Um, various kinds of risk analyses and um, uh, disaster planning. Um, you've got everything from learning management systems to all kinds of collections of research projects that are profoundly reliant now on network services. You have most of your journals being delivered electronically from third parties in the library setting. Um, we have um, a lot of discussion about movement to outsourced services, Gmail for campus mail or um, Microsoft's mail offering, uh, cloud services of various kinds, and um, a lot of concern about how these things uh, readjust the risk profile. Um, so. Um, it was really um, it, it was really quite striking how um, poorly I think these gradual you know shifts in research and teaching um, practice and in um, in libraries have been accommodated into a lot of these um, these risk discussions. Uh, one of the particular um, things that I think is interesting that came out to me was um, you have lots and lots of campuses uh, going out and analyzing various offerings. They'll ask a question like, we want to um, move our um, email 
uh, to an external service provider and we need to understand the resilience and security and um, privacy and related issues that surround the different uh, providers. Yet, um, in a certain sense, this is totally impractical. Um, there's no way that any of these service providers can um, have a team from a new campus show up every three days and um, go through and um, essentially recertify, um, you know, um, the service. Uh, what you really need is sort of standardized mechanisms for collective audit or certification or analysis um, rather than every campus doing it for itself. And it's sort of striking to me to note um, in that connection that we really have very little of this in place um, around the um, electronic information resources that many of our libraries rely upon now, with the sole exception of the discussion about the certification of um, trusted digital repositories for preservation purposes. Um, there are some interesting conversations going on in this area around email services um, uh, um, among um, the information technology um, units at various institutions. And um, this is a place where I think that um, libraries as well may be um, wanting to do some serious thinking and recalibrating. Um, I do uh, commend um, this short summary of the roundtable um, uh, for your reading if you're interested in these topics. And um, we will, going forward now, be um, doing these kind of write-ups for um, our additional roundtables. Uh, so look forward to more of these kinds of things that um, accompany our uh, fall and uh, spring member meetings. And that, I think, is everything that I wanted to talk about today and everything that Joan wanted to talk about today. Um, we're both off to the EDUCAUSE ELI meeting early next week, and I hope I will see some of you there, and we'll be back with another conversation soon. Thank you.